Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio on the occasion of the installation of a new president of the European Commission. And for the first time, it is a woman. That's right, in true EU democratic style, Ursula von der Leyen was standing for the job unopposed and she managed to squeeze through the electoral process by 303 votes to 327 with 22 abstentions. So she begins the big new job on November the 1st when Jean-Claude Juncker finally steps down. But she's already making noises about extending the Brexit deadline beyond October the 3rd. First, and as Nigel Farage rather eloquently put it yesterday in the European Parliament, thank God we're leaving. Meanwhile, according to this morning's Times, Boris Johnson is plotting an early election to take advantage of Jeremy Corbyn's fractured leadership, which took another body blow today in the form of an advert in the uh, Guardian newspaper from a load of lords in the House of Lords, Labour peers, who want him to do an awful lot more than just keep saying he's not anti-Semitic. First up, though, we're finding out why so many super prolific criminals are receiving such short sentences despite being responsible for half of all the offences committed. We'll be asking former number 10 advisor Neil O'Brien why the system seems to have collapsed around the justice scenario. And we want your calls on this too, because so many of our communities are blighted by repeat offenders, and we all know who they are. And shouldn't it be possible to lock them up and lock them up for longer? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we will be bringing you Theresa May's penultimate Prime Minister's questions, and we're also covering the big stories of the day, such as why hobnobs have been reduced from 15 to 20 well per packet and of course world emoji day which is very important as well you're listening to me mike graham right here on talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio now it will come as no great surprise to you that uh, there are things that are broken within our justice system we talk about it quite a lot on this show we talk about why police complain that they don't have enough resources and then spend half their time going around bothering people because their children are playing naked in the garden or because somebody's been found guilty of a hate crime or because some motorist has needed to be uh, taken to task for parking in the wrong place. Meanwhile, Extinction Rebellion seems seem to think it's perfectly capable and possible for them to bring boats into the centre of cities in this country, park them up in the middle of a busy traffic zone and not face any kind of criminal project, pr- prosecution whatsoever. Now, uh, what we do know today is that a new publication by 
the think tank Onward, uh, has found that super prolific criminals, as they are called, are committing more crimes than ever, but are getting sentenced to shorter jail terms than ever and are being uh, taken to court fewer times than they really should be. And in fact, you've got more chance of getting put away for longer if you're a first offender, first time offender, than if you've been committing crimes for years and years and years. The number of people convicted of repeat offences of carrying a knife but not jailed is at its highest level since 2012. People convicted of carrying a knife are up to 18 times without being jailed. Early releases spiked upwards in the last year. The proportion of those jailed for assaulting police officers has also fallen from 17% to 13%. And most shockingly of all, we learned that something like 50% of all crime is committed by 10% um, of criminals. So we all know there's a problem. Let's talk to Neil O'Brien, Conservative MP, who's calling uh, for a sentencing review over all of this uh, problematic system uh, in justice. Neil, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Hard to believe, really, that in, in this day and age, when we know that crime is on the rise, when we hear all the time that pol police officers need more resources, that it's the justice system itself which is sort of kicking the can down the road and not locking these people up for longer. Yeah, so there should be an opportunity to reduce crime a lot because so much crime is now concentrated in the hands of a few really prolific offenders. If you could put those people away more certainly and put them away for longer then you would reduce crime by a lot. You just mentioned that 50% of all crime is now being committed by 10% of offenders. 4% of all crime is being committed by 0.2% of offenders. And these are people typically, they've got drug problems, they're stealing a lot to fund their habit, and they're just going round and round in the system. And despite getting convicted again and then again and again, we just don't put them in jail and we don't put them in jail for long enough if we do. Right. And is there any reason given for why we've got to this particular point? Because, I mean, surely it's very difficult to justify this other than uh, it's a mistake. So I think there are two or three problems. The first is that there aren't really very many um, legislative controls on sentencing for prolific offenders. There's no legal requirement on judges to treat people more severely if they've um, uh, committed a lot of offences. And judges generally tend to go on the harm cause rather than how many previous offences you've done. Uh, the second uh, thing is that even where we have passed laws to try and uh, get tough on prolific offenders, for example, a law we passed in 2015, which I think was a really good idea, that said if you had multiple offences of carrying a knife, you would automatically go to jail. Well, the proportion of people going to jail has gone up a bit in the last couple of years, but in the last year it's fallen back again. Right. And in fact, the number of people not jailed, uh, even though they've had a repeat offence of carrying a knife, not their first time, is at the highest level since 2012. So judges are not really... They, well, they're basically kind of ignoring what Parliament has asked them to do. Well, and the same is true for burglary and other things. Uh, perhaps underlying some of this is that we do need to invest in more prison capacity because our, our, our prisons are at the moment full and that means um, that there isn't the space for um, people to, to be locked up and also it means that prisons are less effective in terms of turning people around. So we do need, I think, our new Prime Minister to invest seriously in our prisons. Yes. Well, and uh, when you say in, invest in prisons, you mean build more prisons, right? I mean build, 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 build more prisons. Yeah. That have more and I mean, how many, more prisons, how many more prisons do you think we should build? Well, I, I, I wouldn't put a hard and fast number on it, but I do think we need to be able to have the capacity... Firstly, to eliminate all the overcrowding, and that means about uh, 8,000 more places. Right. Um, and secondly, to jail some of these super prolific offenders. I mean, if you could take out that, that extra 10% who are committing 50% um, uh, of all crime, uh, so about, there's about 80,000 people in jail, 
uh, if you were to increase that by, uh, I don't know, take it up to 100,000 mm. or something, you'd be able to reduce crime really substantially for, in the grand scheme of public spending, not a lot of money. So no. we spend about £4 billion a year in our jails. That's a lot of money. But we spend £840 billion overall. So the, the prison's budget is a really tiny mm. part of government's overall spending. And given that, the chance of somebody who commits a crime being caught and convicted is pretty low. It's only about 9% of all crimes are solved in that way. Um, you know, it, it's a really good investment. Once you have actually gone through the rigmarole, the police have done everything they can to, to, to get someone to the point of a conviction, well, you've got to lock up more of them and lock them up for longer. Yeah, because looking at um, the numbers in this report, it's quite staggering, really. Let me just read some of them out to you. Over the last 10 years, 206,000 offenders who were convicted but did not receive an immediate custodial sentence, uh, despite having more than 25 previous convictions. 32,000 were spared jail, despite having more than 50 previous convictions, and even 2,450 were spared jail, despite having over 100 previous convictions. And, and Neil, it comes down to um, sort of community cohesion in a way as well, doesn't it? Because everybody knows, no matter whether you live in a nice part of the country or a terrible part of the country, you know, you know who the criminals are. Most cases of burglary are committed by people who live in the neighbourhood. You know, most violent offences are committed by people yeah, yeah. against people that they know. You know, and so it would make life a lot better for so many more people. Their lives would improve immeasurably if more of these ghastly individuals were taken off the streets. Yeah, and you make a really good point there. It's, it's, it is about fairness. People who are in poor neighbourhoods are much more likely to be victims of crime than people in rich areas. Yeah. And so you know, it's, ju it's just ludicrous that somebody who is being convicted for the hundredth time gets a sentence that is much shorter, maybe only four months on average, than someone who's going down for the first time, which is about 34 months. It's, the, I feel like the criminal justice system just sort of gives up on these people. There's an example uh, that I've heard of recently of a, a guy who goes out shoplifting and he takes a book with him because when he gets nicked again for the umpteenth time, he just sits there and he reads his book and he's just clearly not scared of the criminal justice system. And we need people out to be scared of the criminal justice system and we need people to be put away for longer. I think every MP could probably give you an example of someone in their area who you know where they're in prison because the crime stops and then they come out again and it starts again. Um, and sometimes people say we should have less short sentences and I, I agree with that. I think we, we should be jailing some of these people for much, much longer. Um, yes. Uh, so that you... You just, even if you don't reform them and even if they're not deterred by prison, you are just stopping them creating crime in our communities when they are inside. Yes, exactly right. Because un un unfortunately as well, the prolific offenders are presumably also then grooming other young people to become part of their sort of prolific offending gang, if you like. And I'm not saying everybody's in a gang with a capital yeah. G, but, you know, the, the, there is a criminal fraternity in this country and these yes. are people who have never worked, probably, or have never had an honest day's work in their life, probably have committed crimes really from a pretty young teenage uh, yep. uh, life and, and are never going to change. And so they're really of no use to us. The, um, the, the, there's quite detailed research by the Ministry of Justice that they put out this year that shows exactly that. It shows you the, the pattern of this prolific spending starting at a young age. It shows you very large periods of time spent unemployed. also shows you there's some problems we could pick up earlier, you know, people dropping out of school and things like that. They, they all have a similar CV, but you're absolutely right. There is, there is a sort of contagion effect. When you have one of these people in your neighbourhood, um, other people imitate the crimes that they're doing as well. I've seen that for myself. And and so things sort of spiral and you get gangs of people who are using drugs together and um, uh, committing similar sorts of crimes and right. they sort of egg, egg each other on. But um, I'm not surprised in a way that they, they feel like they can egg each other on. There are people out there who are doing the same crime again and again and just not getting sent to jail. People assaulting a police officer 12 times and not getting jailed. 
um, you know, having 18 occasions where you're convicted, not just, you know, cautioned, convicted of carrying an offensive weapon and still not jailed. Right. And you have to feel a bit sorry for the police in that situation, yeah, don't you? Because yeah. they, they, if they are locally um, employed, they will know these individuals. They will know, well, the last time I went to yeah. try and arrest that guy, he, he assaulted me and he's still on the street. Nothing ever happened to him. And I just want to take this moment, if I may, Neil, to, to slightly segue off, because I watched last night, as I'm sure you did, the horrendous video of the London Bridge attacks from uh, from way back a couple of years ago, which, which we hadn't seen yet, uh, where the police officers were walking towards these guys with knives, where uh, people from Borough Market were also walking towards them in a deserted kind of area because everybody had run away. I just wanted to, to, to quickly say yeah. how, how incredible those police officers yeah. are and, and how brave they were. Yeah, absolutely. I have a huge amount of respect for the police. And they put themselves in harm's way, day in, day out. And the same is true of prison officers, by the way. Uh, but they put themselves in harm's way day in, day out, and they do all kinds of extraordinary things to, to apprehend people, and then all unbelievable standards of evidence that are required to convict someone beyond all reasonable doubt. And if you get to that point, after all that work and the risk that they've taken as individuals, the least we can do is make their work meaningful by giving the people they've managed to convict a proper jail sentence rather than just sending them away with a slap on the wrist, which is happening far too often. Yes. So, uh, I have a lot of respect for the police. Yeah. I mean, of course... Respect for them. Um, by the way, as an MP, I am ashamed that we are allowing so many police officers to be used as punch bags yeah. and the proportion of people who duff up cops uh, and are then not jailed is going up. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really shocking. I mean, it should really be an immediate custodial... Should it not be an immediate custodial sentence if you're a sort of police officer? Because it's a yeah, very no, serious I, I, thing to do. I think, I think that's an extremely good idea. I, Anybody who is a criminal, a potential criminal, should know that if you wall up a police officer, a man or a woman, then you are going to go to jail. And that you've got to keep things simple for people who are criminals. They don't respond to anything that's subtle. You've got to have clear boundaries. And I think that would be a really good example. We, we have recently passed a law, which hasn't really properly come into effect yet, that um, will enable people who assault um, police officers to be given a longer sentence, which I think is a good thing, because the, the maximum you can get at the moment uh, until recently was six months. That's not going to be 12 months. But that's not really long enough. And also, just not enough of those people are being jailed, you mentioned already, down from 17% to 13% of them being jailed. It's just ridiculously low. People I've seen in, in, in my local area, my local police force, officers, female officers getting bottles broken over their heads, people getting... Uh, most severe kinds of injuries and um, the courts just need to take this much, much more seriously. And what about the kind of the view abroad which some people have and some of your fellow MPs have uh, that actually building more jails is not the answer, locking people up is not the answer, uh, shorter sentences and rehabilitation uh, is the way forward. I don't personally agree with that because I don't see any evidence to suggest that recidivism goes down uh, if rehabilitation goes up. So I think there's a really clear... Um, uh, correlation between jailing more people and lower crime. Um, crime went up relentlessly between the 1950s and the middle of the 1990s. Michael Howard came in as Home Secretary. All the experts said there was nothing you could do about rising crime. He said they were wrong. We built a lot more prisons. We increased the prison population. And crime started to fall for many, many years. And only recently has it plateaued. So I think that uh, jailing more people is definitely effective. I have, I have some sympathy for the view that short custodial sentences 
uh, are not a good thing because you, you only lock up people through a few months, they make some criminal contacts and they're out again. But I think the answer to that is not that they go and do some community sentence. The answer to that is that they get a proper sentence and they're in prison for a decent length of time. Yes, exactly. Um, because it's all very well to say, all right, let's make sure that you know a, a sort of one-time only criminal doesn't turn into a career criminal. But once you get to the stage that you are a career criminal, as we are seeing with, the, with these statistics we're looking at this morning, they're not going to be bothered by rehabilitation. They're going to laugh at it. They're going to go, this is great. I don't have to go to prison. I'm not being taken away from my family. I can do whatever I like. A lot of these offenders' first experiences of the criminal justice system leave them with a the strong impression that nothing bad is going to happen to them. You get cautions, you get meaningless community orders that are not really uh, enforced. Um, I, I, so I do think you could be tougher at the start of the process. But I think also this, this, this isn't really a contradiction between trying to make um, the criminal justice system better at stopping crime and then tackling people who um, prolific criminals. So I'm all in favour of uh, better drug treatment for people who are starting to become problem drug users. I'm, I'm in favour of making community sentences tougher and more effective. Yeah. Um, those things are good things to do. But I'm also in favour of uh, locking up people who are really serious problems for the community for longer. I don't see why people always say, oh, you've got to be in favour of you know, being tough on crime or the cause of crime. But you've got to, you've got to do both because we've, we've got a big problem. After several years of uh, quite a long period of crime going down since the 90s, it sort of levelled off and some types of crime, like knife crime, are really, really disturbing. And mm. well, no, no wonder if we're, if we're allowing people um, to continue to be convicted of carrying knives and, and still not jailing them, and if judges are kind of effectively ignoring what Parliament have asked them to do, um, then no, no, no wonder that there is, a, there is a problem about repeat knife crime. And what do you think you can do, uh, Neil, with regard to asking for a change in the system? Because we've got David Gork at the moment as Justice Minister. There's a pretty good chance, I'm assuming, uh, knowing what little I know about Boris Johnson, that he may not keep him on as Justice uh, Secretary. He may bring somebody new in. Is that an opportunity for you, do you think, to, to get this uh, sorted out? I don't think it, the problems we've got are about any one particular individual. I think generally David Gork's been, been a very good thing. But the, the, the problem is much more deep-seated than that. There's just a long history of, um, I think, the judiciary um, being, I think, slightly out of step with what the public wants and expect in terms of sentencing. There's just too much readiness to sort of think, oh, you know, this person's going to turn themselves around, even though they've got 100 previous convictions. Too much um, sort of belief that community sentences are the, the solution to everything and a refusal to accept that some people do just need to go to jail. So I don't think it's about an individual. I think it's about having a really thorough overhaul of the whole system. So I do want whoever comes in as prime minister to do a review of sentencing. So I just think that the things I found as part of this research, the way that more prolific offenders get shorter sentences, you know, more crime, less time, it's just craziness. We can't carry on like this. And we need to have the capacity in our prisons to lock up more people uh, and to lock up them uh, for longer because, funnily enough, there is, as I say, an opportunity here. The fact that so much crime is now being done by a smaller number of people who are going round and round again and again um, gives an opportunity with a relatively targeted increase in prison capacity and a targeted increase in sentences for those people. We could make our communities much safer, particularly make them 
safer for the poorest and most vulnerable people in our society. Yes, I think that's a very, very good aim indeed. Neil, thanks very much indeed. Neil O'Brien there, uh, former number 10 advisor, former advisor George Osborne when he was Chancellor as well, uh, Conservative MP. He wants to see uh, a sentencing review carried out and I think he's absolutely spot on because here's the problem and you will be able to understand where I'm coming from here. No matter where you live, no matter whether it's a bad part of the, the city, uh, whether it's a, a rural part of the countryside, everybody knows who's committing the crimes by and large. You know, if you're house gets burgled, your car gets stolen, uh, if somebody gets assaulted in your town outside a pub, generally speaking, there are people in those areas, in those communities, who know who the criminals are, because the criminals are basically committing more and more of the crime. But these are the criminals that are known to the police, known to the community. 10% of, 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 of the crimes are being committed... Sorry, 50% of the crimes are being committed by 10% of the criminals. And something surely has to be done. I want to hear from you on this because I'm sure you'll have stories about contacting the police. And, you know, I'm not going to blame the police necessarily, but there's no doubt that in some parts of the country the police are not as effective as they should be. 0344 499 1000. I want to know what happened to you. I want to know what the police did about it. I want to know what you think uh, happened to the individual who may or may not have committed that crime against you. Do you know whether they went to prison? And if they did commit a crime against you and they didn't go to prison, then what does that tell them? That tells them they can commit another crime. The idea that you can assault a police officer 13 different times and still not go to prison is remarkable, isn't it? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far <laughs> enough. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The 
This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 03444991000. Sean says this. MPs voted to give a decision on the EU membership to the electorate, not thinking we delivered the wrong answer. The House of Commons is completely out of step with the country and will not vote through anything that looks like the leaving the Remain side described during the referendum. And John says the real controversy about the new EU Commission president is the deal done by France and Germany that the new European Central Bank president would be French and the new EU Commission president would be German. Very democratic. I don't think. Hashtag Brexit. Well, let's talk about Brexit. Let's talk about the Brexit party because yesterday, uh, as the new European Commissioner was appointed, uh, you can call it elected if you like, but we all know it wasn't really an election. Uh, she was appointed and she's the first woman in the job. We wish her well. Uh, the Brexit party, however, uh, did not exactly give her a ringing endorsement. We'll hear from Nigel Farage in a moment. But let's talk to Anunziata Rees-Mogg, uh, who is, of course, Brexit party MEP for the East Midlands. Uh, Anunziata, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. You guys must be having a lot of fun over there at the moment. Every time I watch the screen, it seems to uh, seem to show the Brexit party kind of giving everyone a very hard time and quite enjoying it. Well, I think that's what we were elected to do. And it's not that it's fun. It's that it's incredibly depressing, the utter stitch-ups that are going on here that will affect the British people, the people we're here to represent. And we're fighting their corner to make sure as little of it goes through or as successful as possible so that our voices are heard. No, quite. And as the uh, the sort of election, and I call it that very loosely, yesterday went on, uh, and the first female um, commissioner was uh, a European commissioner was indeed appointed. Uh, she takes over from Jean Claude Juncker, uh, does Ursula von der Leyen on the first of November. She's already making noises about extending the um, uh, the Brexit deadline. What do you make of that? I think that it was a stitch up um, that was. We could do nothing more than rubber stamp within the European Parliament. But even so, even though it was a one-horse race, she only won by nine votes. Yeah. Which is remarkably poor. It shows how unpopular her uh, candidacy actually was. Um, but interfering in the British leaving the, a clean, smooth Brexit, I think, is unforgivable. But her policies for the future of the European Union are really quite terrifying. That going, uh, losing the veto, going to qualified majority voting on foreign policy whilst introducing a defence force is really quite a scary prospect. Well, it really is. And one of the things I always ask people who argue about remaining in the European Union and wanting to know exactly how it is that we're planning to leave, I always say to them, well, how exactly do you think remain will turn out? Because what exactly will the European Union turn into in the coming years? Because there's no doubt that they want it to become more of a federalist organisation. No doubt that they want to include even more countries and more expansion will go on and more money will be taken from the countries that can afford to pay. And so nobody ever asked those questions, though. They really didn't, and you are so right. In her speech yesterday, Ursula von der Leyen made it very clear the direction she wants the European Union to go in. It included a, a, a minimum wage across the whole of the EU. It included a social policy for the whole of the EU. It included fiscal powers for the EU. It's a real change in direction to a unified federal state, and that's not something the British people have ever been behind. If they want to carry on and do it, I'm afraid I think we have to let them, but we have to make sure it doesn't affect the British people in a way they wouldn't accept. And what sense do you get from some of the other countries who are represented there, not always by people perhaps who are as, as pro-European uh, or as pro-EU as, as the Commission is, you know, because there are lots of countries now who are asking the same questions that you guys in the Brexit Party are asking? Uh, there are. Um, but it very much feels as though there's sort of preferential treatment for those who really buy into the project 
uh, and a, a lot of problems are put in the way for those that want to resist it or just bring back powers to their own national governments across the member states. Uh, and it is uh, a centralising organisation. And if you're on its side, it will help you in any way it can. If you're not, it will try and hinder you at every step. Yeah. And what do you see happening? I've just been talking to John Rental from The Independent, who seems very sure and very uh, adamant that we will not be leaving the European Union on October the 31st, that Boris Johnson won't be able to deliver that, that Parliament will not allow him to have a no-deal Brexit. Where do you guys stand on all of that? We have got to deliver on the democratic promise to the British people. We should have left on the 29th of March. Uh, it's now the 31st of October. And if it isn't, our democracy could possibly be irreparably damaged. So I think Boris Johnson has a moral obligation to listen to our voters, not to his colleagues within Parliament. And the, the balance of power in our uh, democracy is with the electors, not with the representatives. And that's as it should be. He's got to make sure that that is how it happens. And whether we leave with or without a deal, we've got to go. And leaving without a deal, actually, I think, can bring great benefits, um, not least not, not paying um, the supposed bill for leaving. That's easy money. But also the freedom to start trading with other countries yeah. and setting up proper deals and exploring the rest of the world, not being stuck with the lethargic economies of the European Union. And if it doesn't happen, for example, on the October 31st deadline, what will the Brexit party do? Because obviously you've got a big representation in the European Parliament, but not really anywhere else. So, so what are you empowered to do? What could you do? I, there will have to be uh, a general election and we are ready to fight that and uh, really bring it on. We are looking forward to that fight and we will be fighting from here. We will still be MEPs if we haven't left. We'll be fighting this corner, but we'll also be fighting the Westminster parliamentary corner and making sure that British people are heard on both sides of the debate. OK. Nunziata, thank you very much indeed. We're going to leave you with Nigel Farage's speech yesterday. You can stay online if you want to hear it. And Nunziata Rees-Mogg there from the Brexit Party uh, in the European Parliament. Here's Nigel Farage responding uh, to the Commission president yesterday. Well, I may be speaking from the back of the chamber today, but as I predicted last time I was here, in the European elections, the Brexit party were very much to the front of the elections and massive, massive winners. And I come back to a place that has been humbled and humiliated. The European Council stitch-up has rendered this place impotent until today, when you've got some real power if you choose to use it. What you've seen from Ursula von der Leyen today is an attempt for the European Union to take control of every single aspect of our lives. She wants to build a centralised, undemocratic, updated form of communism that will render nation-state parliaments where the state controls everything, where nation-state parliaments, where nation-state parliaments will cease to have any relevance at all. I have to say from our perspective, in some ways, I'm really rather pleased because you've just made Brexit a lot more popular in the United Kingdom. Thank God we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so say all of us, I think, uh, we would say to Nigel Farage, thank God we are leaving. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If I lay here 
Believe it or not, that I think is the most popular song or the most played song um, in this century so far, which I find astonishing, really, because I don't hear it that much anymore. And there was a time when you heard it all the time, and I suppose that must be why. But I'm delighted to say that we've now finally got to the most important part of the show uh, to talk about the biggest story of the day, which is, of course, uh, that Hobnobs have shrunk the number of biscuits in a packet down from 15 to 12, and they haven't changed the price. They've kept it exactly the same. I'm joined by Helen Knappman now, uh, who is Digital uh, Deputy Consumer Editor at The Sun. Helen, a very good uh, morning to you. Good morning. This Thanks for having me. This is a massively you. serious subject. This. I mean, we were talking about European Parliament this morning, talking about crime, punishment, um, Boris Johnson having an election. This... I'm afraid, is the one that's going to get everybody going. I mean, of course. Who doesn't want to know what's going on with their biscuits? It's really bad news, isn't it? And what I didn't know as well was that this is apparently a particular type of hobnob, which is a creamy hobnob I didn't even know existed. Yeah, that's right. So it's like a little hobnob sandwich. So you've got two layers right. of biscuit and then a nice creamy filling inside. Mm. But now you're going to get less biscuits in a packet. See, that sounds to me like it would be worse calorie-wise than just a regular hobnob because you're effectively talking about two hobnobs stuck together with some cream. That's very very true, although Hobnob does have a chocolate variety it as does. well, so that may be a little bit calorific. Oh, okay. um, but I guess if you're going for a biscuit anyway, you're not thinking about the calories, you're thinking about the treats. And so what's happened here is it's reduced the number of biscuits in a packet from 15 down to 12. So you're getting three less biscuits for your money. And was this spotted by some eagle-eyed consumer or was it just an announcement that they made? I have to say, I don't know. I'd be very surprised if they announced it, given it's not good publicity for it's them, It's really not. It? It's really not. Because the trouble is, I mean, I've, I've, I've suffered from this, I know, in, with chocolate bars because I used to be quite sort of partial to a topic years and years ago. And I went to buy one a while ago, which I, which I hadn't bought for ages. It's shrunk. It's now about nearly two-thirds of the size that it used to be. Yeah, I mean, a topic, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you still get them, though. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's not just these biscuits that are shrinking in size, although mm. we have seen McVitie's do the same with its Jaffa cakes and with its digestives, but we're also now seeing it with chocolate bars. So Mars has reduced the size of its Mars bars, and it's not just chocolate bars either. It's other random mm. household products. Is like it? Toilet roll, for right. example. Oh, it's you know, shorter. The number oh, of sheets sneaky. you get per packet has right. been reduced by a number of toilet roll manufacturers. Right. I mean, I suppose it makes a lot of sense if you're trying to save money because an awful lot of this kind of thing can be done without anyone really noticing. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what they're all hoping. I mean, you've got to be a pretty sad individual to count the number of sheets at a toilet roll, Yeah, <laughs> although I actually did have to do that for a separate story a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, I think for work it's acceptable, <laughs> but I think if you're doing it just because you want to make sure you're getting value for money... Perhaps not. Yeah, that's maybe taking it a little bit too yeah. far. But I think when it comes to biscuits and chocolate, that's far more noticeable because you mm. can actually see the packet in your hand has literally shrunk in yes. size. Or with things like Toblerone did it a few years yes, ago. Yes, they did. And it widened the gap between the little chocolate mm. triangles. So that's a very noticeable see, change. that's evil to me. That is the, that's the sort of work of an evil cr criminal mastermind. What about, was there not, um, a, it wasn't Maltesers or somebody took one out? 
So you couldn't get, you didn't get as many sweets in the packet or something. Ah, that's interesting. I haven't heard that of Maltese. I don't, I'm not sure if it was Maltese. But it was yeah. something like that. Revels or Maltese, something like that. Well, I know that Haribo did it with did its, um, you know, its very popular sweetie beats. It sort of reduced the packet size. Yeah. And at Easter, we did an investigation and we found that Cadbury had done the same with mini eggs. Right. So you were getting a much smaller packet of mini eggs at Easter, but for the same amount of money. Oh, maybe so, that was it. You see, I think that because there's more variety now than ever, it's more difficult to keep a check on this. Because while you say, for example, that Mars bars have got smaller, mostly now they sell these dual Mars bars, don't they? So you buy two, um, which is actually means you're actually eating more, paying more, and they're kind of tricking us all the time into, into doing something we don't really want to do. Yeah, it's a very sneaky tactic by these manufacturers. And it's something that the Office for National Statistics has actually coined as being called shrinkflation. Oh, really? Yeah, so that's where products are decreasing in size or in weight, but the price is actually staying the same. Mm. And its most recent research, they found that in the last two years, hundreds of products have actually shrunk in size, yeah. which is... a you know, a, a lot. And the most noticeable uh, category was actually cereals, which is quite right. interesting. Yeah, because that's another thing you probably wouldn't notice because when you open a bag, a box of cereal, and you open up the little bag, it's never full, is it? I mean, it's only about half full. Yeah, and exactly. If they, and if they reduced it, say, by an inch, you wouldn't probably know. Yeah, exactly. So it was cereals followed by meat, which I thought was quite interesting. Meat. And then it was your sugar and your confectionery mm. and your jams um, and products like that. So, right. yeah, it's across sort of a range of different items. Yeah, packaging's so important, isn't it? So presumably the hobnob manufacturers have not yet come out with a statement or told us why they've done it. Well, they have actually. Ah. They are, they, their statement was, which is very interesting, um, they're saying they are simplifying the shopping experience. <laughs> Excellent. So read into that what you will. Well, I mean, that's obviously marketing speak, isn't it, for we're not actually going to tell you why we did it. I mean, probably, presumably, dietitians will be happy because you're actually eating fewer hobnobs with each packet that you buy. Yeah, that's very true. And, I mean, if you're watching your waistline, maybe you'll eat slightly less biscuits per packet. I don't know. Maybe just stop buying biscuits altogether <laughs> if that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. But, well, I mean, why didn't they just make the biscuits smaller instead yeah. of actually, maybe that's more expensive. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I mean, a lot of these manufacturers, what they're saying when they reduce these items is that they're saying it's because the raw materials are costing more and more. So therefore, their way to get around this is by putting less in a packet but still charging the same price rather yeah. than putting prices up to cover the cost of right. these you know, what's going in these products, sugar, cocoa, etc. Because right. they've probably got a sort of a ceiling, haven't they, on pricing that they know if they put it up above a certain level, the the, the demand will just disappear. Yeah. You wouldn't, I don't even know how much a packet of hobnobs cost, but if they doubled the price, you wouldn't buy them. Well, this particular packet in question costs pound twenty two. One twenty two. Yeah. See, that's a very specific price, isn't it? It is indeed. Obviously, retailers can set their own prices, yeah. so that's where you're going to get competition. So it is always worth shopping around. Mm. Um, and using a price comparison tool to see if you can get more for your money elsewhere. And there's more than likely to be one of those um, as cheaper supermarkets, who I'm not going to name, that will do a kind of imitation hobnob, presumably. Yeah, exactly. So we've looked into this on numerous occasions and we found that these discount supermarkets, so your Aldis and your mm. Lidl's, they do do sort of these rip-off products right. that you are getting from the big manufacturers. So I'm sure there will be a cheaper version available. There will. Well, it's a shocking story and I'm very glad that you've been able to illuminate us upon it. Uh, Helen Knappman uh, from the uh, Consumer Deputy Digital Department at The Sun. Uh, we'll see, see you very soon. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is Talk Radio. More coming up. 
This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Matthew Wright coming up at one o'clock, of course. Uh, we might be able to squeeze in a couple of quick calls, 0344 499 1000. But before we do any of that, uh, we're going to speak to Jonathan Dent, Senior Assistant Editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, because today, of all days, amongst many other things, uh, it is World Emoji Day, apparently. Now, for those of you listening uh, who may not know what on earth I'm talking about, an emoji is a little sort of graphical, uh, a graphic description of something uh, which people use when they're sending messages, when they're sending WhatsApps, when they're sending texts, when they're sending tweets out. Uh, I use them quite a lot. Uh, people say I shouldn't because they're quite childish. I don't think they are. I rather like emojis. I think they're rather good. Let's find out what the Oxford English Dictionary makes of it all. Jonathan, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Now, I'm rather puzzled by Twitter today because I'm trying to find whether or not there's any trending uh, emojis going on with World Emoji Day, and I can't find any. I don't know if that's because I'm not looking in the right place, but, uh, but World Emoji Day seems to be passing Twitter by. Uh, I, I've seen it uh, in my trending uh, results, but that's probably because I tweeted about it earlier. Oh, maybe so. Well, I'm, I've just put it in there and I've found uh, Bloomberg has tweeted something out. Apple unveils new emojis for World Emoji Day. There you go. Um, and they've actually constructed a rather clever looking um, a cityscape with emojis. Now, I've never seen that done before. They've got helicopters, some trees, a couple of houses, cars driving around. Uh, but there's new, uh, there's a guy in a parachute, I can see. Um, there's somebody in a wheelchair. Um, it's all happening. Yeah, I think emojis are... Um, uh, there's no limit to what you can do with them to a certain extent. Like any image, um, you can combine them in different ways and they're being used in interesting ways. Yes. And, and, and I mean, as a, as a dictionary person, what's your view of using a picture to, to, to sort of rather uh, to substitute a word? Well, I mean, uh, we have added. So we've got four entries at the moment with quotations with emoji in. Have uh, you? Because we, yeah, because we use Twitter to provide illustrative quotations these days because it's a vast resource. Yes. And it lets us get to English in use, sort of the living language. Yeah. As it were. I mean, you must be finding the the the, the sort of um, evolution of language to be interesting in this in this modern social media um, age that we live in because. Words are shortened, words are slightly changed, perhaps, and as you say, they're, they're added to with pictures. Well, some of that is uh, quite familiar to me as a medievalist because um, sort of when manuscripts were written on parchment and that was scarce, people shortened words and they came up with abbreviations and right. you had little pictures in the margins to explain things. Right. So actually, it's, it, it's quite familiar to me, that world, although it seems very new at the moment. Yeah, so what sorts of... I mean, you say there are four words that you've got at the moment with emojis in them. What, what are they? Well, the emojis are sort of incidental to the words themselves to, uh, to a greater or lesser extent. So we've got, um, what we got? we've got a vomiting face emoji at an entry which is called, which is butter tooth, which means yellow, a yellow tooth. Oh, right. Okay. So somebody describing somebody's yellow butter teeth and then putting a, putting a face vomiting emoji So is emoji butter tooth a new word then? Oh, no, it's uh, quite an old word. Is it? But it yeah, it originally meant... Um, a uh, particular tooth in an incisor, one of your front teeth. Okay. Um, but it then morphed into being just a yellow tooth. Right. And does uh, the emoji have to appear at the end of the word or at the beginning? Does it matter? Well, um, the thing is, with quotations from Twitter, we're quite often uh, we're quite often quoting the whole thing. So um, if we were leaving out the emojis, it would feel like we were just sort yes. of pretending they didn't exist. Okay. Whereas they do, and they do sort of they provide a. Uh, as emojis usually do, they provide some information about the sentiment or right. the tone of what's uh, right. Being so said. very clearly, if you use the word butter tooth in that sense with the emoji, it's it's a bad thing. 
Yeah, so the quote is, how dare you get a silver tap? Silver cap on your tooth when you have yellow butter teeth. Yes. Okay. Uh, and what, and what else? What else have you got emojis on? Uh, we've got um, uh, there's a, uh, a variant of stupendous, which is stupendious, and we've got a quotation which is, "Oh my gosh, this is so stupendously silly, and I absolutely love it." And um, that love it uh, is reinforced with the red heart emoji okay. at the end of the quotation. And does it always have to? Because they do different coloured hearts, which I've never quite worked out. What's the red yes. heart? Does it have to be red? Uh, it, it doesn't, and it doesn't always display as red, actually, because um, it, uh, it's one of the older emojis and one that started off as a typographical character, so it's originally just a black heart, and some browsers will display it just ah. as a black heart. Yeah, the black heart appears a lot these days, and I, I've often wondered whether that's a bad thing or, or just a variation of the red heart. Uh, yeah, I think there are, there are lots of different... Um, Lots of different meanings attached to the different colour hearts, which I've never really unpicked. Right. Um, uh, I think uh, the source of reference on emojis online says it may be used to express morbidity, sorrow, or a form of dark humour, the black heart. Ah, OK. All right. Well, that makes a bit more sense. And, and then and fi finally, one more word with an emoji? Uh, we've actually got one um, for inverse, meaning upside down, okay. um, where the uh, emoji is actually a picture of... Um, Mount, it's the Mount Fuji emoji, uh, and it's actually used in place of the words of Mount Fuji in the sentence, so it's quite interesting that it's an emoji performing, sort of standing in for language rather oh, right. than just providing... So, so what's the sentence? Uh, so uh, it's about a new visitor centre, so it says, a stunning new Mount Fuji heritage centre shaped like an inverse cone with a pond around it that reflects the form of, and then rather than saying Mount Fuji or a mountain, it's got the Mount Fuji emoji. OK. I thought yeah. you would have the upside-down face, to be honest. <laughs> well, that would be nice. You could put that in as well. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Jonathan Dent there, Senior Assistant Editor at the Oxford English Dictionary, which has changed uh, over, over time into something far bigger than just a dictionary, by the sounds of it. Uh, and they're having to do all sorts of online activity. They're having to put emojis into descriptions of things and having to quote from Twitter you know, so a dictionary uh, is not what it used to be, I'd say. Uh, now, we've got time for a couple of calls. Let's go to Harry, uh, who is in Portsmouth. Hello, Harry. Uh, hello. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. Good uh, afternoon. Is there an emoji, is there an emoji for uh, an angry uh, Maybot? Sparks and smoke flying everywhere. <laughs> well, there is a an couple of angry faces that you could have. Maybe combine that with a volcano or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll have to go to work on that one. Yes. Um, we've been talking about this May legacy, haven't we? You we know, have. Um, you know, the, the climate, she, she's been uh, in that hot air zone in Parliament for three years. Yeah. And I don't remember much talk of, uh, of, uh, of future legacies about committing this pri the next Prime Minister, the one after and the one after and the one after, to decarbonising by 2050. Yet a pink boat turns up in the middle of London... And within two months, she's knocked up a policy of, of committing future yeah. PMs. I know. At the cost of three billion quid, I think you'll find. Well, they were talking about a, a cost of the Second World War. I heard one figure of, of decarbonise would cost trillions. But, you know, so I think Brexit, a, f a few minor billions on Brexit is nothing to speak of. Well, it really but, isn't. I mean, I find it staggering that these people can uh, can have sort of free access to every road in the world that we live in, uh, are allowed to park up a boat uh, wherever they want to without fear or favour. Uh, they've now got access to the government and the cabinet, and now they've got access to the board and the high-level people at the BBC. Yeah, I mean, that, those Americans, you can, you can guess they'll turn up on a pink hovercraft at Area 50. <laughs> 
Yes, next door to Area 51. I think that would yeah. be very good. Yeah, I mean, it's all... But, I mean, all, we, all we've got left, Harry, is hope, isn't it? You know, that she will eventually leave. A week today, she's gone. And uh, we'll have a new Prime Minister. Look, we've had a massive propaganda war the last three, four years. People who thought the world was going their way have suddenly found it isn't. Yeah. And now we've got this thing where school kids have been propagandised. I mean, we did a counting survey on the main road in 1970 when I was at school to see what the cars were doing, and people didn't have asthma. No. Asthma is down to... Furniture, you know. Uh, well, there was lead, and also there was lead in the petrol in those days, wasn't there? That's right. I mean, I mean, my chemistry teacher in '73 said he'd done a survey at a road junction uh, half a mile from my school, and he was a standard at, at the lead at the time. They, they said uh, 20 years ago they said the cars were 20 times less polluting, uh. and yet we've had all this rumpus going on, and now they can just turn up with a, a pink boat or a green boat in Bristol and get their own way. The I same know. as the Last the BBC had that pink Trump balloon in the studio, the actual one. I know, I know. It's incredible, Harry. It's absolutely unbelievable. But thank you for your call. Great call to end the show on, uh, because this is, of course, the only place, as many of you are discovering and telling other people, to get common sense at this time of the day. Because a lot of it not only comes from me, but it comes from you as well, the people that call this show. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, of course. As I mentioned on Twitter overnight, there is a suggestion that we are dusting down the tent of shame uh, and preparing to bring it out of retirement, uh, or at least storage, and re-erect it, very possibly, as early as next week. Keep uh, listening to find out precisely when and where that's all going to happen. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.